Welcome to episode 126 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Heather Phillips. She's a designer currently working at Designer Fund. Uh, previously, she was at Relate IQ and Yammer. But we talk about some really awesome topics in this uh, particular episode around women in design, around macro and micro trends for design, things she's noticing. Uh, she works a lot with placing designers into companies. Really, really fascinating episode. And she is in such a unique position to provide a lot of this insight. So we're very excited to have her on the show. But before we get into that, we want to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. First up, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want, whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, podcasting, writing, whatever. Literally anything you make, you can store in Dropbox. It's fantastic, and they're with you throughout the entire process. Uh, it works with any kind of file, so you're free to choose the tools you need for every project. And when you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone fast just by sending a link. Uh, on Mac, you literally just like right-click and share, and it copies the link to your clipboard, and you just send it to people however you want to do that. So they'll just get a preview online for most files. Uh, they don't have to download anything huge. They can just see it in line. They can listen to, for example, an hour-long podcast in raw format, like super, super high res. And we can listen to it streaming in the car. And that's amazing. The commenting feature gives people a central place to post their thoughts. So that way you can like have conversations back and forth right along the work itself. Basically, they're just trying to give you the freedom to do work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose. And you can get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor back again is FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the ridiculously easy to use online accounting software for you, for creative entrepreneurs, for freelancers, for designers that exists to help you get organized, save time, get paid faster and make more money. It's a beautifully simple and easy to use yet powerful online accounting system that will do things for you like creating invoices. Uh, it takes literally 30 seconds to create an invoice, send it to a client, uh, and they even have automatic follow-up reminders. So if the client forgets to pay you, FreshBooks will handle that sort of awkward experience of trying to remind a client that they owe you money. FreshBooks helps you track expenses. They will automate your expenses. They will help you with time tracking. They have a gorgeous time tracking app, cash flow tracking, and all of this exists both on their desktop app and mobile app. It's incredibly powerful so that you as a freelancer, as a designer, uh, you can see all of your money in one place, understand where you're being owed money, how you're spending your time on what clients, on what projects, so you know how you're making the most money, how you can uh, move faster and basically run a smoother business. I got to use FreshBooks when I was freelancing back in college, and it was so easy to use. Basically, you can just time track, assign that time to a client, and generate an invoice right away, uh, and send that off automatically to a client, the profile that you've set up. It's so easy to use, and we're so glad to have them sponsoring the show. I think they are incredibly valuable, and if you are a freelancer or running your own business, you should check them out. To get started, go to freshbooks.com slash design details. And then in the how did you hear about us section, enter design details, that'll tell them that we sent you. And that'll give you a free month trial of FreshBooks. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash design details. Thanks so much, FreshBooks, for sponsoring the show. And with that, let's get into episode 126 with Heather Phillips. Hey, I'm Heather Phillips. Why is your Twitter handle Heather Jacket? Oh, interesting. That's a very good question. Your last name is definitely not Jacket. It's not. Uh, I feel like it would be cool if that was my last name, but it's not. Mm. Um, it turns out that Heather Phillips is an incredibly common name. Uh, although I am now the proud owner of HeatherPhillips.com. So oh, I've got nice. to put something up there. Yeah. But why Heather Jacket? Uh, so it was a nickname that came about uh, when I was in grad school at RISD. And there was a particular classmate that just gave kind of funny nicknames to everyone. Uh, usually they were some kind of pun or play on words. Or item of clothing. Or item of clothing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know anyone like that at all. Who does word jokes? Yeah, seriously. Lame. <laughs> um, so Heather Phillips, yeah, was not available. And Heather Jacket seemed like the next best thing at the time. And now I'm just going with it. What does it mean? What was the play on words? Did you always wear a jacket? No. Did you have a funny looking jacket? <laughs> it was even worse. <laughs> Those um, are pretty bad. Yeah, it was the original 
like joke was just a play on leather jacket. So I think the first time it came up <laughs> was a play. I was really thinking it was gonna be like heathered cotton. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you Google heather jacket, that's what comes up. There's a lot of heathered jackets. As you might expect. Yeah. So some people's kids. I tell you. <laughs> I tell you. Uh what are you working on? So working on a lot of things right now. Um, so at Designer Fund, at any given time, we have several different initiatives underway. One that we just wrapped up last week was an event, uh, our fifth event uh, called Women in Design. And we had a lot of incredible panelists come together and have just really candid conversations about their experiences working in tech and sharing, you know, their struggles. And we wanted our audience, which was um, kind of a small, small audience of, of women and men working in tech to have key takeaways and some tactics that they could employ in their day to day. So this was the fifth event. Yes, we've done five total. And this was uh, the fifth. We've done them annually for the past few years. Why a small audience? That's a very good question. We thought that by having a more intimate setting that the speakers would feel a little bit more comfortable and open sharing. Mm -hmm. And we had so much demand. We had over 800 requested invites and we only had capacity. We hosted it at Medium for about 100 guests. So we decided to have a audio live stream for those that requested an invite that we didn't have capacity for. So you've done them once a year for five years? Yes. I We may have done them in closer succession earlier on. But yes, there's been five total. And you've been involved with all five? I have not. Yeah, I've been involved in the last two. The last two. Mm-hmm. How is a small audience like that selected? Is that like a first come first serve thing or? No, we, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we try to curate an audience that is diverse and with people that we think are going to get the most out of the event. How did it go? It went really well. We've had an overwhelmingly positive response. Lots of people came up and so I moderated the first panel and then Maria Molfino, who was who spearheaded the very first women in design in collaboration with Designer Fund. She moderated the second panel and then we had time afterwards and so many guests came up to us and said that they were really inspired. And um, I think I think that we're onto something. So hopefully we'll be able to do more events like this. Can you talk a little bit about what themes you noticed that came up? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So the overarching theme for the evening was voice and risk. And so we were having all of the panelists discuss how they handle some of their inner voices that maybe it's it's known that women are more risk averse. So some of the inner voices that may prevent them from taking risks and some of the tendencies that might get in the way from them leading or leading more effectively. And so the conversation was tailored around that. And so we had a lot of really incredible female design leaders sharing stories that where they have had to overcome their own self-doubt and feelings of imposter syndrome. And here you're seeing very successful founders and designers sharing that. And I think that it really resonated with the audience because they thought like, oh, even these people that have met some level of success um, have these same feelings. So these leaders were Jessica Hish, Britt Morin. Yep. So we ha- our first panel was Jessica Hish, Anisha Jane, who is a design leader at Dropbox, mm-hmm. and Tiffany Jones-Brown, who is a creative director at Pinterest. Mm-hmm. And then the second panel was Britt Morin, Lila Janah, and Julie Zhu from Facebook. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Without detracting from the like individual stories, because mm-hmm. I don't have them in front of me, could you, uh, like, what was there a common theme that you found for for the panelists to overcome that inner voice that maybe was interesting or surprising to you? Mm. Yeah, I think that everybody has developed things over time that really involve getting to know yourself. So I think some of the panelists shared that 
everyone has different strengths or ways that they know that they can be at their best. And so people shared, you know, if you know that you are not the type of person that can be put on the spot and come up with an idea right away, and then you're in a work culture where that's expected of you, um, how to set yourself up for success and set proper expectations so that maybe you say, like, that's great. Um, I'd love to think about that and I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Or if you are someone who is naturally more introverted and you know that being in meetings all day is going to exhaust you, um, how do you set up the right conditions where you feel like you can be your best self? Beyond that, I think um, these questions of inner and outer voices, I think a lot of especially women that have been in the public eye to some extent have said, you know, you just have to take that first step and put yourself out there and there's going to be haters. (laughs) So I think just preparing yourself for that and I think trying to have external factors where you can validate whether or not like, okay, if I have these feelings of self-doubt, are those, I don't know, is that legitimate? Is that something that, Mm -hmm. you know, if I put myself out there, um, a lot of times you're going to get positive reinforcement. I have one last question about the audience. Yes. Okay. So you, you had 800 people try and get into a 100% event. You didn't exactly have problems with the audience. But one of my concerns with these kinds of things, I always wonder whether or not I'm allowed to go to a women in design event. Mm. But then I see people afterwards tweeting like, oh, I wish there were more guys here or whatever. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you manage that process? Like that's yeah. a hard thing to navigate, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because we care a lot about diversity and almost this was like another extreme from mm-hmm. what we experience at typical events. I think that... With this particular topic, I think it definitely attracted more women to apply. And obviously, the title of the event, Women in Design, gave people that impression as well. That and XX and UX. Like, I I didn't think I was allowed to go to them the first couple times <laughs> I heard about them. Like, I just heard, oh, hey, it's not for me. But then I saw a few guys in the photos and everything. You mentioned that there were a few guys that are like, I just didn't know it was a thing I could apply to. Yeah. I actually thought the same thing yeah for what user research value that is Mm -hmm. i thought it was like women in design Mm -hmm. well that's good to know we did have some men in the audience and it's interesting like i wonder from their perspective too if the the like i think a lot of the themes are very universal Mm -hmm. so i think it sounds like it for sure that it would be valuable to right a more diverse audience uh, the first theme was voice, mm-hmm. like inner voice. And the second theme was risk. Mm-hmm. What came out of the risk portion? Mm. Get insurance. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is that, and and this, you know, was presented as a tendency that is more typical for women, but I'm sure others experience it as well, that we see with Um, to find success in leadership, you know, that values like more experimentation. And um, whereas for the most part, women are conditioned to be less risk or more risk averse. And, you know, there's all these studies that girls perform better in school and they can follow rules. And then when you think about especially entrepreneurship, like that's not what is valued necessarily. Mm. Um, So that's interesting. You said the word conditioned, right? Which means this is, it's not, innate yes. it sounds like it's oh, yes. this is shaped over over some, a person's lifetime definitely so i'm curious from you've done this twice now over mm-hmm. two years have you seen any sort of macro trends like talking to the people there talking to the panelists what's changed from last year to to this mm-hmm. one um macro trends i think the biggest thing that has stuck with me is that once you're aware of these things then you can start to create circumstances where you feel like you're you can be successful um and so i think the first step is is just being more aware of them and i think a lot of the time a lot of the things that i found the most valuable were some of these women's just saying that they they recognized that they were doing something they realized that wasn't contributing to their success and so they created some i mean condition i guess but they created it some way where you know if they knew they had trouble getting a word in edgewise in a meeting that they would prepare and send something ahead of time or they would consult all the people in the meeting beforehand like if you know where those 
where you're going to face some of those struggles and you just have a heightened awareness of them, then you can start to like come up with workflows and and ways around them. It's like the self-awareness. Hmm. Interesting. I never thought about that as a personal thing. Interesting. We, we just changed our workflow at Sidewire. So it's, we used to have these like weekly product meetings every Monday and it was like really exhausting. And we recently changed it up so that basically the majority of the meeting happens before the meeting, like going around and make sure we all have consensus on whatever we're like presenting or getting ready to share. And that worked way better. But I didn't think about that being a personal thing rather than an overall maybe product just works better this way thing. So that's a really interesting insight. I I had not considered that. Yeah, I think just for teams generally, like I know when I work with a new team, I'll kind of check in with people and get a sense for what's their preferred method of communication, what's kind of their preferred workflow. So some people need heads down time and, you know, when they're wearing headphones, that means do not disturb. Some people don't want to get a million Slack messages. They're just like, if something, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is important, just come tap me on the shoulder. It's much more efficient. So I think just being, having awareness of who you're working with and their preferred styles of communication. Well, one of the other macro things I'm interested in as well, which I feel like you have a pretty unique insight to is sort of the, this uh, topic over the last year as it relates to startups and hiring and, and companies being built here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of nuance. So I don't want to like butch- butcher the problem, but it seems to me that part of the problem is not only building a diverse team that includes women and putting them in places of leadership, but it's also, well, I guess what I just said is getting women into places of leadership and mm-hmm. setting them up for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the time that you've been working at Designer Fund, has what have you noticed in terms of that? Uh, progressing among lots of data points of startups. Yes. So something that I have noticed is there's often, and not necessarily just through designer fund, but just hearing a lot of teams say, as they're growing, we want, we want a more diverse team. How do we, how do we get more diversity? And I think the thing that I came to realize was the first, the like founding team and the first people you hire are so important because everyone who comes in to interview and meet you after that, they're going to look around and think, do I fit in here? Mm-hmm. And that can be gender, that can be age, that can be ethnicity, that can be sexuality. Like you're going to look around and just think, are there people like me? And if no, you might decide you're not comfortable there or that isn't a place that is going to be like, nurturing and open. So I think that's so important. So if you, you know, your first 50 employees are white men, you're probably going to keep hiring white men. What advice do you give to companies that are in that situation that want to change? Start over. Yeah, just fire everyone. (laughs) Uh, Shutter, uh, declare bankruptcy, start (laughs) over. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, it takes, it takes a lot of work. And I think that there's a lot of companies that have, initiatives that that's just like something they're solely focused on and they make a commitment to it. And it's, it's hard. I think it's hard because there's a lot of people that it's very easy to, to shrug and say, we tried, but I think you have to try that much harder. Well, that's the other thing too. Are you seeing more companies actually trying? It sounds like maybe that's the case that at least people are talking about it and mm-hmm. trying for, for what that's worth. Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. So I think we're seeing more of that. And I think now at least it's part of the conversation, which is a big difference than even a few years ago. But you mentioned companies with initiatives. Does that become insulting at some level to the people they're trying to hire? Mm, how so? Like we're trying to hire more women specifically, right? It gets really tricky. Right? Yeah. This is, I mean, it's obviously not an easy topic or we'd have a solution, right? Yeah. <laughs> Please yeah. give us the answers. Yeah. In a really nice soundbite. Yeah. <laughs> Startups, listen, I've got, <laughs> got all your answers got right here. Got something to say. It's, it's difficult. I think that the thing that, that I think a lot of these companies are trying to avoid, and there's like definitely a trap there where they say, we tried, but we didn't want to lower our bar. Yeah, that's, oh, and oh, that's gross. just, that's the worst. <laughs> gross. Because that has a lot of implications built yeah. into it. So I do think that, and I can just speak for myself personally, if I'm talking to a company that said, we really want to have more women leaders at our company, 
And that's that's part of the reason why we're talking to you. And, you know, in in that, I think that that can you need those first few people to be the catalyst to to start to create some change and snowball effect. Mm hmm. Yeah. For, for exactly the reason I described. Do you feel like the the leadership, this has to come from leadership or it can be that that can filter up, I guess? Hmm. I mean, to some degree, it does come from leadership, but I think that founders can be empowered to to make decisions about who some of these key hires in, in leadership are. And they're, they're going to be the ones setting the tone for their team. So... That's not to say that an individual can't have an impact, but um, I think that when it comes to hiring decisions, that's much more of a team effort. Wow, we went we went deep there, you know. We've got yeah, we've gotten through the first thing you're working on, which was <laughs> yes. uh, women in design. What else are you working on? <laughs> first things done. What yes. what else? So the other thing is a, there's only one other thing. There's only one. Yeah, I think that, that that is part of what's exciting about working at Designer Fund is we have this very high-level mission of bringing better design products and services into the world. And there are so many things that we can be doing at any given time to work towards that mission. So another thing that I'm focused on is a new offering that we want to be able to help connect designers to top startups in our community, which we have done historically through our bridge program, but we want to do this on an ongoing basis. So, so there's not like classes or, or sessions. Yes. Yeah. So it would be, we would have an application period and get this influx of designers and yeah, it was very uh, time boxed and then they would accept roles with companies, but because of our role in the community, we see designers are coming to us on an ongoing basis. And mm. so we want to be able to continue to help them while still building and educating the best design teams. Does community mean portfolio? No. Cool. So we have portfolio companies. So companies we invest in. And we also have partner companies, which means those can be our bridge partners or partners for our new program that we vet and determine that they meet certain criteria where we feel like they value design and that, you know, oftentimes the people you place won't have a like terrible time there. No. Right. We wanna we wanna feel good. And our Can you share that criteria? Some of it, yeah, certainly. I mean, a really quick gut check for us because the well, our entire team are, you know, for the most part, we're all designers, is would we want to work there? <laughs> so we we go through the process as if we were con- considering it as a place that we ourselves would want to work. But we are in part assessing it from a business perspective. We a lot of times want there to be a design leader in place. So, you know, this phrase is overused, but design has a seat at the table. And that design leader is committed to both building and developing their design team. And part of being in bridge or, um, you know, making a commitment to your team to invest in them and their professional development. So that's a very positive signal. We interview the founders. We want to talk to them about how they think about design. And a lot of times, it's very positive signal if very early on that if not some of their first hires, either one of the founders was a designer or very early on they hired a designer. What's been the hardest part so far of moving from a batch system to sort of a rolling matching process? Yes. We had um, a forcing function of time with Bridge. So we had an application period. We got this huge influx of applications and all this inbound interest and we also, you know, spent all this time creating content and marketing and getting people excited about the program and then ended up with, you know, over a thousand applications. And now I think it's how to keep this like steady cadence of designers and, and how to um, continue to provide support for them. How are you going to do it? <laughs> Tell me the answer. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I think what really differentiates Designer Fund is we 
spend a lot of time with the designers in our community. So if you are a designer looking for a new job, we are helping with everything from assessing opportunities, trying to kind of assess whether or not you want to be going to an early stage startup or you want to be joining a larger company or you want to be freelancing and really help you navigate some of those decisions. If you are going to be interviewing we are helping with everything from preparing your portfolio to doing practice presentations all the way through to helping you negotiate an offer. So we're very high touch and um, everything's very personalized. So as you might imagine, that is difficult to scale. <gasps> yeah. How do you, how the hell do you do that? I just talk to designers all the time. Is it, ju- is it just you? <laughs> we have, we have our help from our team, but I think that right but now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. How no. big is the team? Uh, we had just hired our fifth employee at Designer Fund. Wow. So that includes Enrique, Ben, you. Katie and Lisa Ann, who is our latest employee. Katie, last Latest name. teammate, Katie Topper and Le- Lisa Ann Logan. So we are a very small but mighty team. And yeah, I think with this program, like we're still in the beta trying to figure out what the demand looks like and, you know, are committed to, to helping serve the design community. So what are you sensing? What's the, what does the environment look like now for startups that need designers for designers that need jobs? Mm -hmm. uh, Is Heather Phillips design psychic. Get a look into my crystal ball. God damn it. So (laughs) what, what am I saying? At least two data points. So, we work with a really wide range of companies. So we have portfolio companies that are founders looking to hire their first designer. So that's kind of one category. We have kind of, I would say, early stage startups that oftentimes have a head of design or a design lead, and then they're looking to build a team. So I think that's in a lot of cases somewhere where we can be really helpful, where you're You know, we have a startup that has received funding. They made an early hire of hiring someone who um, is going to lead design for them. And then they are tasked with hiring a team. And so I think that's where we can be really effective because we work with so many different types of designers. And beyond that, you know, we have partners like Dropbox and Pinterest and who are much larger stage. Um, And then certainly there's always designers going to Facebook and Google. Are these scales even? Or are there way more designers than there are jobs or way more jobs than there are designers? Hmm. I feel like there's a pretty good like supply and demand right now. Okay. I think that some companies are slowing down their hiring process a little bit. Like I think you're seeing the market like chill out a bit. Chill out. You hear a lot about it. Yeah. So I think that there there are definitely companies that, and I guess it, it's probably also very cyclical. So companies that we worked with a year ago who were really hustling to hire a design team and maybe we helped them hire four designers and now they're, they're, they're kind of balancing out and they don't have as urgent of a need anymore. And so maybe we're not working as closely with them. And it's interesting because I think that designers might be, I think it just depends on their experience, but I think that I witnessed a lot of designers that were really excited to be a first designer or a founding designer, and they want to have, you know, a bunch of impact and really make their mark. And then maybe they've been through that a few times now. And so they're feeling like they want something that there's a team in place where they can work alongside other designers that they can learn from other people on their team. Totally. Um, and those are more, I think, the types of companies that go through bridge where there's a team in place. Gotcha. Um, because I think for most designers who are like mid-career, that's um, maybe where they can find find success and can keep growing and learning. Because I do think that when you're the only designer, there is a bit of a ceiling. And then also you're doing so many other things. You're not just focused on on your own learning or craft when you're at an early stage startup like that you have to really play to your strengths and so you're not able to invest in like learning a new prototyping tool or like really kind of digging deep and um focusing on your own development 
So when these people are still in those jobs yes, and they're looking to hire a team, mm-hmm. do you see when they don't have a lot of experience and like help them out? Is that something where you kind of offer guidance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a challenge for a lot of younger designers just to get that first job. Mm-hmm. Just get that first break. I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of ways that they can do that. I think that... It takes a lot of persistence and a lot of times bigger companies are better equipped to support younger designers because they have proper expectations about what they can contribute right away. They can set up like a really comprehensive onboarding process. They know that there's going to be gaps and skill gaps and things they need to learn. And especially for your first job, you're just like learning how to have a job and how to communicate with people on your team. And it's not as much, especially if you're on a team, a product team, it's not about this like genius of the individual designer (laughs) that maybe- What are you talking about? What? (laughs) It's very different than the mentality in a lot of design programs in school though, Mm -hmm. where there's like, you want to slave away at something and have a big reveal and be the hero be the hero yeah and people think that designers go into a cave and come out as like a genius with like this whole thing fleshed out right yeah and i think that in a lot of ways that's celebrated oh, like totally. you you know you have this vision for what it means to to i don't know have that big reveal and that i think that's the hardest thing that i've seen some designers kind of learn is that that's not what's going to contribute to your success in Um, within a company where you need to get buy-in and there's stakeholders and it really behooves you to to be sharing sharing your process with people um, early and often and getting feedback and I think that 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 is something that there's a learning curve for what are you noticing for for designers that are trying to get their first job what the biggest weak points are is it is it craft is it portfolio is it communication skills? Like where, where is the education system, either formal or informal online, falling short to get people their first job? Mm-hmm. We're asking you really, really high level hard questions, by yeah, the way. I, so this is all just your your personal experience. Yes, this is my my personal experience. What I'm seeing, um, hmm, I think that there is a disconnect between having a really visually appealing portfolio and I'm, you know, something that's like a bunch of glossy dribble shots. That's very different than being able to explain your process and talk through your thinking. And I think that something that designers are trying to do to bridge that gap between maybe some student work and what they feel like they need to get a job is they're doing self-initiated projects, which can be really great. But I think then what the companies are seeing is like, oh, well, this person, of course, they designed this beautiful weather app, but there were no constraints. There were no constraints. No business goals. So something that I would advise is I think that there's nothing wrong with doing self-initiated work, but maybe you create those constraints or for yourself, or maybe you you go through. I think we're seeing a lot of uh, there's this trend to do like case study formats for portfolios, and I think it's a good one because it really forces you to think through what is the problem you're solving, um, you know who who are your users, things that you don't necessarily do in school, at least not in traditional design programs, and that's what you're going to need to be doing on the job. Okay. You mentioned school and design programs a yes. lot in the last couple of answers. You definitely took design school seriously. You went to grad school at RISD? Yes. And before that? I went to Occidental College, but Occidental College has a reciprocal program with the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. So I went there as well. How did you end up at art school? I think I always knew I wanted to go into design And that started with designing a lot of stuff on the computer, doing a lot of fine art. Um, I was editor-in-chief of my yearbook. So definitely was like leaning in that direction. And yeah, I think that the clearest path that I saw at the time was graphic design. And so at at the time that meant, you know, 
making posters and album covers and websites. And so that was kind of how how it started. And then found myself trying to take on projects at Occidental. We had, um, I was one of the founders of, it was called the Occidental Agency, which was like an on-campus agency. So we would make stuff for clubs and events. Um, and so that's kind of how I got a, a taste for it early on. Those student-made orgs are super fun. Yeah, yeah. Why did you go to grad school for design? So when I graduated from Occidental, I worked for a small studio in LA. And another thing, this kind of ties back to getting your first job, is it was a small studio. So I wore a lot of hats. So I could come in. I was really organized. I could help with you know, project management and I bookkeeping. Like I, we just, I just did a little bit of everything, but because I could provide value in those ways, I was able to also do design. And so it wasn't, the studio wasn't totally taking a risk because I, I had some proven value. <laughs> I love that you framed it like that though. Like I, I realized internally that I could provide value by doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed that sometimes people think the other way, like what value mm-hmm. can a company provide to me? Yeah. Yeah. But holy shit, if someone really understands what kind of value they provide to the world, they can do a lot of, like, they can do anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very true of startups where, like, you need to be, or really small organizations where everyone just needs to be scrappy. And if you're all aligned with a common business goal, like, you can make a lot happen. So I think that was how... I kind of got that first foot in the door was it was a small organization. I could do a lot. Um, We worked a lot in the animation industry. And so that was, I kind of got a taste for that, but realized that that wasn't the type of design work that I was necessarily passionate about doing. And I think I realized I still had a lot to learn and um, the type of degree that I had was not, was different than, you know, having a focus on design and producing work. I, you know, had more of a broad liberal arts degree, um, which really, I think, served me well that like I had much of kind of broader base level education. And then um, I think it it served me well to go to grad school a little bit later after having worked for a couple years, assessed what I liked and didn't like, where I thought I wanted to focus, and then uh, started looking into graduate programs. And at the time, yeah, just looked at some of the top programs for graphic design and applied and kind of applied on a whim. Uh-huh. Didn't think much of it. And uh, I got got into RISD, which was pretty awesome. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I had a former boss of mine who wrote me a letter recommendation I called him to tell him that I got in and he didn't pick up. So I left him this long rambling voicemail being like, I got in and uh, I'm really excited, but I'm also really nervous. Like, am I really going to move to Rhode Island? Uh, I just bought a car. Like, seems like I can't move across the country and long rambling message. And I was like, well, call me back. I'd love to get your opinion. And he called me back and left me a voicemail that just said, you got into RISD, go to RISD, and if you don't, don't call me. <laughs> so That's awesome. That was some real talk. So I went to RISD. Was this an MFA program? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, MFA in graphic design. And I went there kind of tentatively still. Like I flew out with a suitcase. Despite the voicemail. Despite <laughs> the voicemail. And... Stayed in student housing and was just like, I'm just going to fill this out and see see if this is the real deal. And in the first semester, there was so much that I like, I always say to people like, you don't know what you don't know. And I just came out of that and just thought that the portfolio I used to apply was garbage. Like there's, there's no turning back. That's such so a good sign. I was, I was hundred percent in at that point. What, uh, what else did you work on while you're at RISD? Hmm. So RISD is a very process-driven school. And so a lot of times I tell people that they teach you how to think. They teach you um, how to solve problems. You do a lot of projects that are just teaching you how to 
be really free and fast and loose in how you work. So, you know, an early project is you're given something that you're doing, um, you know, like 500 iterations of something. And in starting that Everyone process. Everyone does 500 iterations <laughs> on every project, <laughs> right? Naturally, yeah. In starting that project, you realize really like you just after a few hours do some quick math and be like, oh, wow, if I like actually spend two minutes on each of these, like it's impossible to finish. Uh-huh. If I were to stay up from now until when I'm supposed to present it in class. And so you just have to get really creative and like figure out how can you make one one sketch of something that actually like serves as multiple iterations or mm-hmm. this one's nudged one pixel to the left. <laughs> this one's nudged one up. This was all by hand too. Oh, These were hand on sketches. Oh. Yeah. So RISD. And then uh so the first part, like kind of year or so the program is just focused on more of like formal training so background you have you do some self-initiated work but a lot of times it's in the framework of like a given class or prompt um the biggest takeaway for me from that too was uh i entered as one of seven in my class and we all shared a studio together and worked very long hours together and so that, that those were some of the best experiences of just like staying up late, working, working alongside someone else, getting feedback. Um, and I learned more from my classmates than anything else. Were they all doing the same thing? So it was all graphic design was kind of the umbrella of our program, but everybody came from a very different background and had a different focus. Nice. So, yeah. So what was your thesis then? You know, we're fishing for this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> dig deep. Um, So my thesis was about the process of critique. Hmm. And the way that it came about is I thought I was going to be doing something else. And your final year, there's a presentation that you give to all the faculty and there's um, external critics that come in and they're like the thesis critics. And so you did this presentation in like November of your, your final year. And you were just supposed to be presenting, you know, your what you were going to be focused on for your thesis. And it was an opportunity to get some feedback so you could kind of course correct if they had some input that you should take into consideration. And I don't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing something with like semiotics. I was just like really <laughs> another another trajectory. And I kept going to faculty members and advisors and getting asking for feedback and realized that everyone was giving me such wildly different feedback that I thought, how how on earth am I going to synthesize this? And like, what direction am I going to go? Everyone just has such a different opinion. And so it started as kind of an experiment. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to listen to everyone's feedback and just do exactly what they say. And I'm going to have no agency in the process. And I'm just going to see what happens. And so I took this project that I was working on and went around and asked all these people for feedback and covertly recorded them. I didn't tell them I was recording them. And then I just executed exactly what they suggested, just word for word, didn't think about it. And then for my thesis presentation in November, it was kind of like a preview of here's what I'm going to be working on for the year. All the people in the audience, I had asked for feedback and they had no idea. So I had this big reveal where I was like, well, here's where I started. And then I asked this person for feedback and this is what they said. And this is what I did. And I just went through the whole. Threw them all under the bus. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Evolution. (laughs) And that, and then like mic drop, that was it. And then you had individual meetings with your advisors afterwards. And they all all hated you. (laughs) No, all of them were like that. Like, that's what you should be doing. Investigate that. That's really interesting. So I just did a bunch of projects investigating that. Like I took um, a bunch of really famous pieces of graphic design and posted them on Amazon's Mechanical Turk and like asked for feedback. So it was like Paul Rand's IBM poster and Milton Glaser's, you know, Bob Dylan poster. And I posed as them. So I was like, hey, like I've been working on this project. I want to know what you think. Like, thanks, Paul. And people like ripped it apart and so this like recurring theme was when asked everyone's a critic everyone has an opinion and so as the designer you need to decide what feedback you're going to take what's relevant 
and decide when something is done because you can just continue on that path indefinitely. Did you come away with tips for how to know the answers to those things? How do you know when someone is the real deal and they're giving you good feedback or someone is? I mean, I think you just need to hone your own intuition. I mean, towards the end. Hone your own. Hone your own. I just started making really snarky projects. So I made a set of you and Bryn would have gone along of disapproval and they said things like are you finished with this and like <laughs> hovering art director as a stamp yeah they're rubber stamps one of them, oh no it says uh are you happy with this uh let me know when you finish <laughs> oh my god missed opportunity there's a bunch of them <laughs> do you I, still I, have those i do i used <laughs> those are great yeah i used i sold them for a while i had a shop and i would sell, oh. sell them but I stopped peddling my stamps a little while ago. <laughs> Do you feel like what you learned from doing that thesis has mapped to what you're seeing in this startup y digital product world? Mm-hmm. Are there truths in, in that as well or, or were there differences? I'm trying to think. So things that I learned in looking at the process of critique and how they're applied to startups? Uh, not that. It seems to me that People are still figuring out the critique process at mm-hmm. startups and big companies alike, especially probably at a smaller company where it's really yeah. hard to find time for that process. Yes, definitely. Or even if it's like only two people, it can be really hard to kind <laughs> of go back and forth. Exactly. Well, it feels like sometimes awkward, like it. you don't want to formalize it too much when you have a small team. And I think the biggest challenge I faced when I was a designer at a small startup was Maybe you have one or two other designers, but a lot of times you're getting feedback from non-designers. And so there's really, the onus is on you to educate them on what that process looks like. And um, I remember when we were at, um, when I was at Relate IQ, we we had like a design board where we would post stuff up and we would have prompts. And then I realized very quickly, like I had to have some ground rules for like just explaining how the process works, that it's not valuable to just say, oh, I like that or I don't like that. Um, and and really kind of give some, some guidance as to how to give constructive feedback. Mm, constructive feedback. Mm-hmm. That's hard to give. Constructive or actionable feedback. It's like walking the fine line of kind of being an asshole and being straightforward. I feel like there's a threshold there. I think. Well, that threshold doesn't exist for Bryn. Because I just am an asshole. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying you're very straightforward. I cannot believe you would assume. (laughs) Um, We talked a bit about the giving feedback side. What about the setting things up for receiving feedback? The framing of the problem, things like that. Are Mm -hmm. those things you delved into at all or was it mainly on the the giving side yeah i think that just setting the proper expectations and being very specific about the type of feedback that you are seeking in school i i you know have much more clearly formed opinions about it now i think in school it was all self-directed work and i i think the end goal was always some like higher design and it was much less clear to me. I think like I, I, you know, when we were talking about this idea of like the genius designer, I definitely had much more of that mindset then because, uh, you know, it feels like kind of a luxury now. I like just didn't know better. Um, and in making the transition to product design, realized that that's, that's so important to kind of set those, um, set context early. And then also just, in terms of what stage you're at and what type of feedback you're seeking. Because, you know, at some point when something is, you know, already a functional prototype and like you're trying to finesse like a very specific interaction, you don't want someone to come in and like question the whole notion of the feature. Yeah, totally. And I think that unless you set that up early, you definitely can have people come in and without the the context necessary, um, think they're being helpful in in questioning everything when um, if you followed a more rigorous process and checked in with people along the way, you hopefully would avoid avoid that happening. And then when something is done, it's exactly what people expected because they were bought in along yes, the way. Yes. Yes. It's the opposite of going to a cave or I guess the modern version of a cave would be headphones. Just doing your thing and being like, here, it's done now. Mm-hmm. And no one's bought in. 
Yeah. Your your developers don't actually want to build it. Yeah. Your product team is like, mm, this doesn't really meet business goals. Yeah, that's how you alienate yourself. Yeah, and I, I don't know what, I think that's something maybe that can, I mean, maybe that's what's happening in all of these like alternative types of design education where like you're doing an accelerator program. Montessori or, design. Yeah, where you're learning like the value of, um, having a whiteboarding session with your PM and engineer, like just thinking through ideas like really quickly um, so that you're not wasting time, like perfecting a mock to only have everyone say like, Oh no, that's, you know, that's not technically possible or <laughs> that's, that's surprise. Or that's we, impossible. It's oh, yeah. all <laughs> custom views. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, Oh, we, we changed direction. We're not, mm. not going to go that way anymore. Uh, knowing what you know now, do you, yes. Do you ever recommend or advise people go to design school that are coming through Bridge? Like, mm. you should step back and uh, <laughs> go to school for this. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the individual. We have, in this last session of Bridge, we had 32 designers go through the program. And on average, they had about six years of professional experience. But that's to say, you know, we had some that had 10 to 15 years of experience and others um, every bridge session, we have, you know, one or two designers who are right out of school, but are just exceptional um, and are getting jobs right out of school. But it's interesting. I mean, I see a lot of designers now doing programs like General Assembly or Tradecraft. And and I think that it's potentially that it can give you sometimes the nuts and bolts, especially if you're transitioning from another area of expertise. But then there's really nothing to replace just like the hands-on experience of yeah. working inside an organization. That's also the case. Uh, I know general assembly is somewhat expensive. I know tradecraft is pretty expensive. Yep. Yeah. But I've been very skeptical of them for that reason. Uh, yeah. I think skepticism is healthy in that case, but it seems to me that if, if they deliver on what they promise on of giving you the, the nuts and bolts, the fundamental skills to be successful as a designer, that that money would be well worth it if you can, land a job making six figures a year, right? Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be worth it. Although I can't speak from experience. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a lofty promise. I don't know. I mean, they have multiple tracks of students and I, I can't speak from personal experience. I'm sure but, to some degree it is what you make of it, right? Yeah. Like they, it can't all be on them, but it seems very difficult to give people everything they need to come. For example, if I'm hiring people for the company I work at, like, expecting them to know everything I need to get them in the door as a junior designer would be, mm -hmm. that's a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people self-select as well. Like it's somebody that, that is, is taking that initiative or is comfortable with ambiguity, like the type of person that can, can jump in and provide value. And um, yeah, I think it depends a lot. I think the difference with bridge and, um, a lot of the offerings that Designer Fund has is with Bridge, the, you're eligible to do the program by accepting a job with one of our partner companies. So you're getting the job on your own right. It's something that, you know, if you're an experienced designer, you're accepting a role. And then by virtue of doing it through Designer Fund and through Bridge, then you're eligible to have this really incredible experience of going through this professional development program. So I think that for designers, sometimes that's why they would accept an opp one opportunity over another because they see the value. And the, the difference too is bridges of no cost to designers. So versus some of these other um, more like trade school programs. No tolls. No tolls. What? It's a bridge. <laughs> no. Oh, no tolls. I thought you were saying nodals, like modals or totals. Yeah. Totals? totals. Were you going to say totals? <laughs> totals. <laughs> what a funny word. Uh, we're almost out of time. We're over time, but I, I, I'm not done asking questions. So let me refine down to, to the key last question. So in the bridge program, you pair designers with mentors. Is that right? Mm -hmm. We call them our guild members. Guild members. Interesting. How does that work out? The essence of this is like, can you successfully artificially and in a formal way pair people together and have it work? Or do you feel like a mentor-mentee relationship might be better off in a more like natural, organic happenstance kind of situation. Speed dating. Yeah. So 
I think that we, so that that is one of the benefits of the bridge program. So we announce who our guild members are each session and they are people in the community and, you know, heads of design at companies. So in this past session, you know, Kate Aronowitz, who formerly at Facebook and now VP of design at Wealthfront was one of our guild members and Amanda Linden, who is head of design at Asana. So people that some of these designers might not necessarily otherwise have access to. And then we also have alumni. So it is kind of uh, not necessarily always this like mentor-mentee relationship, but also, you know, really beneficial to talk to someone who might be your peer, but who has recently gone through the same program or process. And the designers request who they might be interested in talking to based on their background. And so it's not like they get paired up and then they're stuck with that person. It's yeah. more of like the network can come together and yes. ping so, each other at any time. Yeah. I mean, we try to formalize the process a little bit in like facilitating an introduction and encouraging them to meet for coffee or get together. And sometimes they come and use our space and do that. And then it's really up to them whether that relationship continues. But I think that there is something nice about that formality of both parties opting in and having the intentions be clear. It's a blind date. Yeah. <laughs> Design blind date. But so you find that that process is working. Yeah, I think that it's helpful. I think we we ask that the designers go into it with some intention so they can prepare the person ahead of time with maybe something that they have questions about or they're interested in. And that's also, if we know that ahead of time, we can take that into consideration when figuring out who to best pair them with. Um, and we actually go through a couple cycles during Bridge, so you're not necessarily just meeting with one, one person. But I think we're just trying to give you access. And that's really what a lot of what Bridge is about over this 12-week period. These aren't necessarily experiences. You know, a lot of these, the speakers, we encourage them to give candid off-the-record talks, but a lot of them have given talks in the past or written about their experiences. And I think we're just trying to amass all of these valuable tools and experiences that you might accumulate over a long period of time. And we're just condensing it into these really incredible 12 weeks where, um you you have all of these tools and resources and community at your disposal. And a lot of it is really just inspiration that we want designers to feel really inspired. And, and then I think it's different than some of these programs because then you're just going to work the next day. So you're taking things that you're learning and going and applying them the very next day to your job. For people that this sounds interesting and they want to try out this new continuous sort mm -hmm. of bridge spinoff kind of thing. What's yeah. the best way for them to reach out? How about, can I give you a point of contact? We put it in the show notes. Yes, maybe? we can yeah. do that. Okay. I think that might be best because it's still kind of in, in beta. So you don't want to put your email address in front of our audience? <laughs> we'll just have it be guarded by a, a Google form. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm happy they can get in touch. I mean. Heather Jacket on Twitter. Heather Jacket. Tweet at me. Cool. Uh, we now are definitely over time. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Um, if you're a designer looking for new opportunities, reach out. That's great. Well, we'll send people to you. We'll send people to Designer Fund and to get in touch. Okay. If they're interested. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks awesome. so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. That was episode 126. Thank you so much to Heather for coming and hanging out with us, putting up with us the day before her birthday. Happy birthday, Heather. Well, late birthday now. Well, it was, it was the day before her birthday, okay? Now, and now it is past her birthday, and we are past this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know what you thought. We're at Design Details FM, or join our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. And of course, before we go, be sure to check out our two sponsors that made this episode possible. First up, again, Dropbox. Dropbox is focused on making it so that you can work the way you want on any file, with any device, from wherever you are, and with anyone you choose. So you can just keep building cool stuff and not have to worry about any of the extras. You can get started. Check them out. Dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. And thank you again to FreshBooks, the ridiculously easy to use online accounting software for you, designers, developers, freelancers, entrepreneurs, that helps you keep track of your money, your time, your expenses, all from one dashboard and mobile app. It's incredibly easy to use. It's going to help you be more efficient running your business, do more work, and understand where you're creating value. 
Get started at freshbooks.com slash design details. Enter design details in the how did you hear about us section. That'll tell them that we sent you and get you a free month of FreshBooks. Thank you once again to FreshBooks. And again, that's freshbooks.com slash design details. We'll see you on Wednesday with Luke Beard. Luke Beard.